All right, so Mark chapter number 9. Mark chapter 9. Take a look at verse number 1 uh, down to verse number 13. And this passage of Scripture is often referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. And again, we'll talk about what that means and all that is involved. A very unique passage of Scripture. Uh, so we'll begin here reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make thee three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be said and not. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word, Lord, and we thank you again for another opportunity, uh, Lord, just to be in your house this morning and just to open up your word, to sing praises to you, Lord. And uh, Lord, we are truly a, a privileged people, God. God, and I pray, Lord, that we recognize, Lord, that with great privilege comes great responsibility. Father, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that we would be hearers of the word. Uh, Lord, but we would also be doers of the word. God, I pray, Lord, that we would take the truth we hear and apply it and, and Lord, just grow in our love and, and devotion to Jesus Christ. God, I pray, Lord, you would give us understanding. Lord, help me to be clear as I teach and as I preach this morning. God, I pray for clarity in my thoughts and in my words. I pray for liberty in preaching. And God, I pray you touch hearts this morning. God, I pray that you would, Lord, work in lives, God. There's many, uh, Lord, different needs represented here, God. And I pray that through your word and through the ministry, uh, Lord, uh, this morning and throughout this afternoon, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would meet the needs of every person that is here. May they look to Christ, Lord, to meet those needs. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, again, we are coming into a new chapter here. Just finished up chapter 8 last time, beginning chapter 9 here this morning. And we're also seeing that, again, we, are, we, we have crossed over the halfway point of the book of Mark. Uh, so we're a little bit over halfway through the Gospel of Mark. We don't have the chart to show you this morning, uh, but I've showed you that before. Uh, Mark chapter 8, end of, the, end of that chapter really marks the turning point um, in the Gospel of Mark and even a turning point in the focus of Christ's ministry. Uh, before this, you see Christ out in the crowds, out in the multitudes, ministering, healing, teaching, you know, doing miracles, doing all these things. Whereas now, again, the primary focus of Christ from here to Calvary is the preparation and the training of the apostles. It is the 12 that will take on the work, that will carry on the work of Christ after his departure from this world. And Jesus is making sure that the disciples, that these apostles are ready for the challenge. Because as we've seen, there are many, there are many areas where these apostles still lack in understanding, where they still lack in faith. Again, where they are, where, where we see they're they, they are deficient. All right, they are not ready for that task that is ahead of them. But Jesus will prepare them for it. Uh, Jesus will make sure that they are ready before again, he leaves this world. Now, one of the ways that Jesus prepared his disciples was by, uh, if if you recall, he tested their belief about again the person of Christ. He 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 asked them the question, "Whom say ye?" That I am a very important question and a question that every single person upon planet Earth must answer at some point in their life. Again, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? You have to do something to ignore him is to reject him. 
Again, every single person must come to a place in their life where they either embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior or they reject Christ. And they therefore reject the gift of salvation that Jesus offers them through the gospel. Well, again, we we looked at that passage. Jesus asked them the question, whom do ye say that I am? Uh, Peter, again, the, the spokesman for the group of the apostles, again, boldly and clearly enunciated the truth. He said, thou art the Christ. The son of the living God. That's right, Peter. Again, Peter speaking on behalf of the disciples. That's right, disciples. Again, you pass the test with flying colors. You know who the person of Christ is. Then if you recall back to chapter number eight, you also see the fact that Peter, after that, uh, began to tell, to tell these disciples what was going to happen um, in the life of Christ. He told them that Jesus was going to suffer. He told them that Jesus would be betrayed by the religious leaders of that day. He told them that Jesus would be crucified and that Jesus would rise again from the dead. And for the disciples, again, yes, they agreed. Yes, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We know who the person of Christ is. But whenever Jesus began to unfold the redemptive plan of Christ and why he came into the world, the disciples recoiled at the thought. Again, anything but suffering Anything but Calvary, anything but the cross. If you recall back, remember Peter foolishly rebuked Christ. And again, Christ ended up rebuking Peter again for uh, for doing such a thing. Uh, but it, it, it revealed where the disciples were. All right, They were right on the person of Christ, but they were so shaky whenever it came to the plan of Christ. And we're even going to see today, again, they're, they're still in the same boat. They're still struggling. You know, wondering what does he mean by the resurrection you know, or, the, or the death of Christ? The disciples still had not fully embraced the reality that suffering came before glory. But that was a reality that they had to embrace, that they had to understand, that they had to, again, recognize was God's plan for Christ coming into the world. You see, the disciples' mindset was still on the kingdom. I mean, the king is here. The Messiah is here. Therefore, in their minds, it's time to establish the kingdom. Right? In their minds, the first and second coming, again, it, it, was, it was the same thing. Right? They, they, the Old Testament prophets saw no church age in, in which we currently live. That was a mystery that was revealed in the New Testament and in which we currently live. So in their minds, the coming of the king meant the coming of the kingdom. And according to them, again, a, a king doesn't go to the cross and suffer. Again, a, a king is not nailed to a, nailed to a cross and, and, and crucified. The suffering of the cross was not part of their plan. Yet as we know, it was part of God's plan. And that is, that is a truth that the disciples had to understand. And in today's passage, we find a very unique incident that occurred in the ministry of Christ that is, that is referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. Where Jesus takes the inner, inner circle of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he gives them a special privilege. He gives them a preview glimpse of the coming kingdom. The kingdom that even from our perspective is still yet to come. I mean, the kingdom hasn't come yet. Right? The kingdom will come one day. Jesus is coming back. He will establish his messianic kingdom, fulfilling his promises that he made to establish the kingdom. We understand that. Right? But we see here that Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a preview glimpse of the, of the glory of Christ. That he again that that will again that will uh, that, that will embrace him again as he comes into the world and as he establishes his messianic kingdom. All right, so they see the glory of Christ and all of his glory, and as he will come when he returns the second time. Uh, let's take a look at verse number one here. The first thing we see is, if you're taking notes, is the promise made. The promise made. Verse number one. Notice what Jesus says here. The Bible says, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. You know, there, there's Bible skeptics who will jump on that verse and say, Aha, we got, we find an error, we found an error in the Bible. You know, all the disciples are dead, and the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. Therefore, the Bible is wrong, so they would say. 
Again, they're the ones in error, though. Again, as you zoom out, you understand the context. You understand what Christ is referring to. Christ is not referring to the actual inauguration of his kingdom. He was referring to this preview glimpse of the kingdom that he is going to give this inner group of the disciples. All right, so notice what Jesus says here. Again, first of all, we understand that Jesus did not mean by this that he was going to establish the messianic kingdom before the disciples died. I mean, the disciples are all gone. I mean, they, they've died many, many years ago. And the kingdom still has yet to come. So clearly that's not what Christ is referring to here. So what Christ is referring to here is, is, is explained to us and made clear to us as you read verse 2 down to verse number 10, this transfiguration of Christ, that this preview of, of, of the messianic kingdom to come, Christ in his kingdom glory in which he will come when he returns the second time. So the fulfillment of this promise, again, is the transfiguration of Christ. The fulfillment of this promise is, is a foretaste, again, is, is, is a foretaste of what is to come in the future. So we see the promise made. Second thing we see here is the preview given, the preview given. Take a look at verse two through four. The Bible says that after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So let's consider a couple of things from these verses, beginning with the company of Christ. The company of Christ. Consider who is with him. Jesus does not take all the apostles with him. He doesn't take the larger group of disciples with him. He takes three men with him. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. As you follow the ministry of Christ, you find that these three men were really part of the inner circle of Jesus Christ. Christ allowed these men to experience things that many of the other apostles did not get to experience. For example, whenever Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter, it was these three men that were allowed to, to witness that and be with Christ. Whenever Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father before his crucifixion, it was these three men that were with Jesus Christ. And again, here at the Transfiguration, it is these three men, Peter, James, and John, that are found to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason for that, again, I, I don't know. Again, it could be that Jesus had a, again, was, was specially preparing these men for a, a special position to be leaders within the early church after his departure. I mean, that could be the case because we do see that as you read the book of Acts and the epistles, you read that Peter, James, and John were leaders, uh, again, strong leaders uh, within the early church, uh, again, after, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That could be the reason why they were chosen um, over others. So we see the company of Christ. Let's also consider the characteristics of Christ, the characteristics of Christ. Take a look at verse 2. The Bible says that Jesus leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. You know, we're not going to get into this this morning, but it would it, be an interesting study to uh, look at the mountains of the Bible. You know, you go from Mount Sinai, you take a look at Mount uh, this mountain right here. You look at, uh, again, Mount Calvary and, again, many mountains throughout the Bible. And that would be an interesting study if you wanted to do that at some point. But you see that Jesus takes these disciples, Peter, James, and John, up into a high mountain in order uh, to show them a glimpse of his glory. And the Bible says here, he, that is Christ, was transfigured before them, transfigured before them. Now, that word transfigured, it means literally to be transformed. It means to be outwardly changed. The, the Greek word that is used here is the word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. And we're all familiar with that in the, in the animal world. You can take a butterfly, for example, and you, see, you can see the uh, metamorphosis from, uh, again, the egg to the cocoon to the full, again, beautiful butterfly that it becomes. And, again, th that transfiguration or that, that transformation, I should say, that occurs. And we see here that Jesus is transfigured. He is outwardly changed. He is transformed in the eyes of the disciples. They get a glimpse of what the glorified Christ is going to look like. Whenever he comes again the second time, whenever Jesus Christ comes back the second time, establishes his messianic kingdom, Jesus is coming back in the fullness of his glory. And the disciples get a glimpse of, the, of this glory that, that Christ will come back with. 
Take a look at verse 3 here. We find that the Bible says his raiment, that is his clothing, became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. All right, so his clothing was a radiant white. Again, it, it, it emanated his, his glory. Again, the, the whiteness of it was as white as snow. The Bible says it, it was so white, again, more white than what any, what any fuller could, could bleach clothing uh, to be. And a fuller in Bible times was was a trade where uh, again you would dye and you you would bleach wool and clothing, and again you would make it white or you'd remove stains from clothing. And the Bible says that the whiteness of Christ will be so radiant it'll be it'll be such a white that no fuller on earth again can even uh, again tr- uh, again make that or can. Uh, duplicate that in his in the clothing that he whitens. Take a look at verse uh, uh, three here. We so we see his raiment becomes shining. Matthew 17 verse two. This isn't in the Gospel of Mark. But Matthew 72 as this. It says his face did shine as the sun. His face did shine as the sun. Matthew 17 verse number two. So his clothing was a radiant white. Again, whiteness that is beyond human comprehension. Again, his face was shining as the brightness of the sun. So here is a preview of the glorified Christ. Here is a preview, again, of of what Christ will be like in all his glory when he comes again the second time. Now, whenever he establishes his kingdom upon this earth. Again, he will be glorious and he will be bright and he will be radiant and he will be full of light and he will come in, in, in the fullness of his glory. And his glory will be so great that it will emanate from him. Let's also consider a, a very interesting verse here. Take a look at verse 4. We see the conversation of Christ. The conversation of Christ. Notice here, Jesus was transfigured. The disciples look upon it and they see there's two other men that are with Christ talking with him. Uh, two very familiar men. Uh, uh, ones we'd be familiar with. It says there appeared unto him Elias. Who was that? That's the prophet Elijah. And Moses. That's the servant of God. And they were talking with Jesus. That's very interesting. You know, Jesus here, he's been transfigured. The, the brightness of his glory is emanating from his face and from his clothing. And Jesus here is sitting down and he is talking with Moses, and he's talking with Elijah. Now, when did you like to know what they were talking about? Well, thankfully, the Gospel of Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke 9.31. It says they were talking about this. It says, And spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, wouldn't you have loved to you know, have been one of the disciples here and would uh, to, to hear this conversation? Jesus in the fullness of his glory, speaking with Moses, speaking with Elijah. And what are they speaking about? They're speaking about the coming crucifixion of Jesus. They're coming. They're, 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 they're speaking about his coming decease, his coming death that is going to happen in Jerusalem on Mount Calvary. And this was good for the disciples. This was exactly what the disciples needed to see and needed to hear. Because for the disciples, this confirmed a couple of things. First of all, this confirmed that the death of Christ was part of God's plan. Up to this point, Jesus had spoken openly about his coming death, and and the disciples recoiled against that. The disciples bristled against the thought that Jesus would die. That the Messiah, the King, would die and be put to death in, in in such a gruesome way. But Jesus here is speaking with Moses and Elijah, and what are they talking about? They're they're talking about the death of Christ. This would be further confirmation that this was part of the plan of God. And the disciples, the ones who were resisting the, the plan of God, needed to be reminded that this was part of God's plan. Secondly, this was a confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that is, the Messiah. One commentator, Hybert, says this, and I quote, he says, Moses and Elijah are commonly accepted as the illustrious representatives of the law and the prophets, which bore witness to Jesus. Their presence with Jesus testified to him as the true Messiah. All right, so get this. Moses, again, is representative of the law of God. Elijah 
is representative of the prophets. The Old Testament is often referred to as the law and the prophets. Now, what do the law and the prophets do? The law and the prophets witness of Jesus. You may not read his name in the law and the prophets, but it tells again us it tells us much about him and his coming and why he had to come and who he was and, and his characteristics as the Messiah, where he'd be born, how he would die, how he would suffer. Again, all these things are spelled out for us where? In the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Again, it is shedding light on who the Messiah was. Genesis 3.15, the first verse we're given, which promises that a Redeemer will come. Now, what does the law of God do? Moses here is representative of the law. And as you read the law of God, guess what the law of God does? The law of God condemns us. The law of God shows us that sin deserves punishment. I'll say that again in a stronger way. Sin requires punishment. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That is the requirement of the law of God. Sin brings death. Sin brings punishment. Sin brings separation from God. So the law judges us. The law condemns us. The law shows us. The law cries out, guilty, guilty, guilty. And all of mankind is guilty before God. Now, Jesus never sinned. Jesus was sinless. Therefore, Jesus was the one exception to which the law could not cry out guilty against him because he was not guilty because he was the sinless son of God. We understand that Jesus went to the cross for who? For the guilty ones, for the sinful ones, for sinners like you and I. The law demands death for us. It condemns us. Again, it it sentences us to death and separation from God. But Jesus came and Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the types and the shadows that are contained in the law. Again, becoming the, the, the perfect lamb of God to which all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing forward to. Jesus came and made a once for all sacrifice. Why? So that guilty sinners like you and I can be forgiven of our sins. So we can receive the mercy of God that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Moses here represents the law, and Moses is witnessing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who took our punishment upon himself. He is the one who took our death upon himself. Getting into his crucifixion. What about Elijah? And Elijah was representative of the prophets. And you read through the prophets, both the minor and the major prophets. And again, all throughout the prophets, you have a pointing forward to Christ. Again, many, many countless prophecies regarding, again, even just the first coming of Christ. Made hundreds of years before he came and fulfilled exactly in detail to the T, 100% of the time, 100% in every single way, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's many other prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. But countless prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ uh, in his first coming. So Moses and Elijah here, again, why are they present? Because they are testifying of Christ. They're witnessing to Christ, representative of the law, which testifies of Christ, and the prophets, which also testify of Jesus Christ as well. So Jesus must die. Why? Because the prophets prophesy he must die. Why? Because the law demands death. And Jesus took our death upon himself. Let's continue on the verses 5 through 8. If you're taking notes, here's another point, And that is the preeminence declared. The preeminence declared. Take a look at verse 5 through 8. The Bible says, And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make thee three tabernacles. Or let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. So Peter here, 
You know, we, we see the response of Peter. Peter is often the first one to speak up. He's often the first one as, as, as the spokesman of, of, of these three and of the, of the larger group of the apostles. Peter is often the spokesman. All right, Peter is often the one to, uh, again, just you know, say what needs to be said, whether it's the right thing to say or whether, there's, or, or whether it's the wrong thing to say. And we see Peter here speaks up and he says to Christ, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. <clears throat> now, the Gospel of Luke records that Peter said this as Moses and Elijah departed from Christ. All right, so Peter had never been addressed. Nobody, nobody asked Peter's opinion. Right? Nobody told Peter to speak up at this moment. And Peter probably shouldn't have spoken up at this moment. But Peter spoke up at this moment, and Luke records he spoke up as Moses and Elijah were departing from Christ. All right, so what is, again, we see in Peter, again, Peter likely, again, he, he's in the moment. Again, Christ has been transfigured before him. Christ is, is, is in all of his glory. The brightness of his face and, and the brightness of his, of his clothing is, is radiating He's speaking with Moses. He's speaking with Elijah. And now it seems like Moses and Elijah are leaving and Peter wants to stay in the scene. Peter wants this to continue on. Peter wants them to stick around. Peter didn't want this to end. All right, so Peter offered to, uh, to put up three tabernacles, tents or shelters for these men. And Peter is possibly thinking, again, maybe this is truly the inauguration of the kingdom. Again, as he beholds Christ in all of his glory, maybe Peter is thinking, again, Christ is going to set up his kingdom. Finally, the kingdom is coming. The messianic kingdom is going to be established. Bible commentators tell us that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths would have been going on at this time. And this was a remembrance for the children of Israel of God's deliverance from Egypt. And Peter may be thinking, again, what, what better time to bring in the kingdom? Feast of Tabernacles, you know, which, which is a remembrance of the fact that God delivered us out of the bondage of Egypt. And God will deliver. Maybe God's going to deliver us now. Maybe God is going to deliver Israel and establish the kingdom. So again, Peter's mind is still on the kingdom. He wanted it now. Peter still didn't understand or appreciate the fact that Jesus had to suffer. This was still the, the furthest thing from Peter's mind, even though Jesus had, had explained this to him. Even though Jesus, Jesus was just speaking with Moses and Elijah about this. I mean, it was clear this was the plan of God. This was the path, this was the path for Christ. But in Peter's mind, this was the furthest thing from his plan for Christ. Verse number six. Verse number six says, Peter, why did, why did Peter say this? Again, why, why did he do this? Bible says he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. In other words, Peter didn't know what to say, so he said something. All right? Maybe you've been in a situation where you didn't know what to say, so you said something, you ended up sticking your foot in your mouth. All right? You ended up saying the wrong thing when you should have just stayed quiet. You chose to say something because you didn't know what to say, or maybe you were fearful, so you said something. That's exactly what Peter did. All right, Peter was afraid. James and John, they were afraid. They were awestruck. They were, they were again, on their faces before, before Christ. And Peter was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. So instead of staying quiet, he blurted out whatever came to his mind. One commentator said this. He said, whenever Peter did not know what to do, he talked. Right, probably not a good, probably not a good character trait. All right? uh, again, when you when you don't know what to do, talking isn't always the option. Sometimes the best option is just remaining quiet, remaining silent. Let's take a look at verse seven. All right, Peter is not uh, addressed. You know, Peter's request is not even uh, is not even responded to. Uh, consider we see the response of Peter, but secondly, consider the revelation from heaven. Verse seven says this. It says there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, all throughout the Bible, again, a cloud was representative of the glory of God. Remember the cloud filling the temple, Solomon's temple, after it was dedicated to the Lord. You might remember the cloud in the wilderness that, uh, again, that, that uh, uh, the people were led by this cloud. It was, it was symbolic of the presence of God. And we see here that this cloud overshadows the disciples 
And a voice speaks from the cloud, the voice of God the Father, saying this, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Now this is the message the disciples needed to hear for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it further confirmed to the disciples that Jesus was the Son of God to whom they owed their allegiance and honor. If you remember back to the baptism of Christ, it was a similar thing. God the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here once again, the disciples are reminded of, of God's uh, of God's stamp of approval upon the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And he speaks, this is my beloved Son. Secondly, this is a rebuke to Peter. This is a rebuke to Peter. You know, Peter's statement... In essence, we'll say this, bypass the cross, bypass suffering, and establish the kingdom now. That's what Peter wanted. Like I said earlier, Peter didn't appreciate the cross. He didn't appreciate the the concept of a suffering Messiah. That 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 was not what the Messiah was to do. So we thought, so God turns to Peter says, this is my beloved son, hear him. In essence, what God is saying is, Peter, stop talking and start listening. Stop talking, Peter, and start listening to Christ. Start listening to Jesus. Start listening to your Lord. Jesus has made it clear. I mean, Mark 8, 31 the Bible says, he, again, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. If Jesus says that the path of suffering is the path of God, Peter, hear him. Listen to him. Again, Peter, stop talking and listen to the words of Christ. And number three, this is a reminder of the preeminence of of Christ. You see, Jesus was not on the same level as Elijah and Moses. I mean, Elijah and Moses were great men. I mean, they, they, they were used mightily by God, but Jesus was not even on the same level as these men. I mean, Moses and, 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 and Elijah were, were merely men who God used, and they all testified of Christ. They pointed to Christ, the Messiah, but Jesus is in a whole other category. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Eternal One. Therefore, listen to Him. I mean, this is what this is what Moses said. This is what the prophets said. They all pointed forward to Christ. They all testified of Christ. He is the fulfillment of those things. He is the revelation again that has been prophesied all through the years. And then take a look at verse eight. Suddenly, it's all over. It says, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. See, Jesus was not inaugurating the kingdom at this time. The king was there. The kingdom had been offered. The Jews rejected the kingdom. They rejected their king. They rejected the kingdom. The kingdom would be postponed. And the kingdom is still yet to come from our vantage point. And the kingdom will come one day but jesus gives a glimpse of the kingdom he gives he gives a glimpse of the glory of christ coming in his kingdom again in the future take a look at verse 9 through 13 we see another uh, point here and that is the perplexity clarified the perplexity clarified take a look at verse we see first of all the perplexity of the disciples in verses 9 through 10 the bible says and as they came down from the mountain he charged them that they should tell no man what they had seen Till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. All right. So again, the disciples were just to stay quiet about this. All right. Till after Christ had risen. Take a look at verse 10. It says, And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what, what the rising from the dead should mean. All right. So the disciples, again, Peter, James, and John, come from this glorious experience, this glorious mountaintop scene where Christ is transfigured before them. Again, they, they still don't understand the redemptive plan of God. The Bible says they're, they're, they're talking amongst themselves. They're questioning amongst themselves. What does this rising of the dead mean? I mean, what is, what is Jesus speaking about? What is he referring to, this rising from the dead? And what is this? As Jesus had just said, don't, don't speak of this till the Son of Man is risen from the dead. 
And then the disciples turn to Christ and they ask him another question. Take a look at verse 11. The Bible says, then they ask him, saying, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? All right, so their question was a good question. They're asking, um, in essence, what they're asking is, don't the scribes say that Elias must come before the Messiah? That Elijah must come before the Messiah? That's a good question, because that is a question that is, root, that, that is uh, rooted in Old Testament prophecy. Albert Barnes, a uh, Bible commentator, says this. He says it was a common doctrine among the Jews that Elijah would appear before the Messiah came. And they did not then recollect that he had appeared. To this difficulty, the word then refers. We are satisfied that thou were the Christ, but Elijah has not yet come, as we expected. What then is the meaning of the common opinions of our learned men, the scribes? Were they right or wrong in their expectation of Elijah? So that's in essence what they're asking. And are the scribes right? I mean, they say Elijah must come before the Messiah comes. And again, according to them, again, they didn't think Elijah had come. All right. So, again, according to them, again, they're, 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 uh, their mind is confounded. They're perplexed. They're confused about this issue. If you go back to the book of Malachi, again, it speaks that there would be one who would come before the Messiah. I'll read these verses for you. If you want to jot these down, Malachi 3, 1. Malachi 3.1 speaks of the fact that one would be a forerunner of Christ. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, who is that speaking of? I think that's a pretty easy one. Who is that speaking of? John the Baptist, right? My messenger, the one who will prepare the way before Christ, the forerunner of Jesus. What about Malachi 4, 5 through 6? Consider these verses. The Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. All right, so if Jesus is the Messiah, then where is Elijah? Has he come? Will he come? And what are the answers to this question? Let's consider verses 12 through 13. We see the clarification by Christ. Verse 12. Jesus answered. And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first. So future tense. It restoreth all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said a not. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. Past tense. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. So, yes, Jesus affirmed that this prophecy was true, just like all prophecies are true. Jesus, Jesus affirmed that, yes, Elijah would come. Elijah would come before the Messiah. But Jesus also reminded them of another true prophecy that they needed to, that, that they needed to grasp, that they needed to embrace. Jesus said, it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said and not. This idea of a suffering Savior is not some novel concept. The idea of a suffering, a suffering Savior is rooted in Old Testament prophecy. I mean, take a look at Isaiah 53. I think, uh, I think it's Psalm 22. Uh, again, many other passages you could look at that speak about the sufferings of Christ that he would endure. The sufferings of the Messiah that he would come through. And Jesus reminds the disciples, yes, that prophecy about Elijah is important. But don't forget there's other prophecies, too, that are just as important. The, son, the prophecies regarding the Son of Man and his suffering. So Jesus reminds them of the fact that the Messiah must suffer, but also, yes, Elijah must come before the Messiah. Now take a look at verse 13. And Jesus here makes an interesting statement that, that, that probably baffled the disciples. Verse 13, Jesus says, But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Elijah has come already. All right, who is this Elijah that Jesus is speaking about? The disciples are probably trying to, again, wrap their mind, thinking of, again, Elias has already come. And who is this Elias? Who is this one that Christ speaks of? In Matthew 17, 13. The Bible says that after Jesus said this, it says the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. 
Luke 1.17. Luke 1.17. Before Jesus came the first time, God raised up John the Baptist for a reason. And here's the reason. It's explained in John 1.17. Listen as I read. It says, To go before him, who is the him? Christ. In the spirit and power of Elias. That's Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, I believe here this this prophecy in Malachi and uh, even what Christ says here in Mark 9. Again, my my position is that this that this has a double fulfillment, a double fulfillment. Elias has come, right? Elijah has come. And John the Baptist came in the in the spirit and power of Elijah. And the Bible says, just, just as Jesus said, the people did whatever they wanted to him. Again, they, they, they rejected him. They rejected the forerunner. They, they, they killed the forerunner. They did away with him. They didn't, they didn't heed his message. They didn't heed the message of John the Baptist who came in the power and spirit of Elijah. So yes, Elijah has come, but Elijah will come in the future. Right, so John the Baptist was rejected. The king was rejected. The kingdom was rejected. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom upon this earth. And I believe that the Bible teaches that Elijah or a, an Elijah-like figure will come and prepare the Jewish people to receive their Messiah. And many believe that this is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. If you want to go check out Revelation 11 at some point. But there's two witnesses. And many people believe that one of these witnesses is Elijah or an Elijah-like figure. All right, Which would also be a fulfillment of what is spoken of here and also back in Malachi. All right, so we come to verse number 13. Again, we see Christ clarifying uh, the questions of the disciples and this, this entire account is, is really one of the most unique accounts uh, that we read about in uh, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospels, the other Gospels as well. And uh, this is one of those accounts where uh, this week I've been trying to figure out how do you apply this? You know, this is, uh, this is wonderful. You know, this is a great passage to speak of and to, and to talk about and to learn of and to exposit. But how do you apply this within your life? And specifically... To believers, how do you apply this in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ? And well, I believe what you have here is, yes, a foretaste of, of what is to come in the kingdom and the second coming when Christ comes in, in all of his glory. But it's also a foretaste of the glory that awaits believers in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us and that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You take a look here at this transfiguration. Again, the word means a, a transformation or an, or an outward change. We see that in the example of Christ. The word comes from the Greek word uh, that is pronounced metamorpho. And in that word, you may hear another English word I shared earlier, and that is the word metamorphosis. The word metamorphosis. Like I mentioned earlier, we often think of the butterfly when we think of this word. It begins as an egg. It emerges as a caterpillar, and it undergoes a complete change into a beautiful butterfly. All right, it is a metamorphosis. Again, that is the word that is used here to describe this transfiguration of Christ. And just as Jesus was transfigured, he was, again, outwardly changed in the presence of his disciples— so the Bible also speaks of a metamorphosis that occurs in the life of believers in Jesus Christ. And there's three aspects to this I want you to, uh, I want you to get a hold of this morning. And I'll, again, say these in, in closing, but in, uh, again, as we apply this message this morning. And that is, first of all, there is the metamorphosis of salvation. There is the metamorphosis of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You cannot have a saving encounter with the Lord, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, and remain unchanged. Salvation changes a person. 
Salvation transforms a person's life. Salvation takes somebody off of the broad road of destruction and places them on the narrow road that leads to life. Your salvation, it, it, it pulls you away from, pulls you out of darkness and it, it brings you into light. Salvation changes a person's outlook. It changes a person's thinking. It changes a person's living. It changes a person's speaking. It changes a person's prioritizing. It changes a person's affections. It changes a person's heart from the inside out. It is spiritual heart surgery that occurs when somebody is regenerated. When somebody is born again by the Spirit of God. And you can't meet God in salvation and remain the same. What happens, again, is, is a person gets saved in the sin that they once loved. They don't, they, don't, they don't love anymore. They despise it. They hate it. They fight against it. They're at war with it now. You know, and, then the, and the righteousness and the, and the holiness and the Christ-likeness that they once despised and they once neglected, now they are pursuing and they, they crave that and they delight in that and they hunger for that. <clears throat> and this is... In the reality, in this, this metamorphosis of salvation, this transformation of salvation. But there's also this metamorphosis of sanctification, a metamorphosis of sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed, there's the word metamorphosis, into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we look into the word, as we behold the glory of Christ, we are changed. As we behold Christ and fix our gaze upon him, we are changed. Believers are changed. We are sanctified. We become more like Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the word metamorphosis. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we ask people, again, have, 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 have you been uh, transformed, again, through, through the experience of salvation? Secondly, are you being transformed by yielding to Christ in sanctification, are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in righteousness? Are you putting off the old man, putting on the new man? It is this lifelong process of putting off sin and of pursuing Christ and of pursuing holiness. It is this metamorphosis, this, this transformation, this, this change occurring within your life. This is a, a lifelong thing, lifelong process of pursuing Christ. And then lastly. There's the metamorphosis of glorification. So there's the metamorphosis of salvation. There's the metamorphosis of sanctification. And there's the metamorphosis of glorification. Consider what the Bible says. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation is in heaven. Speaking of believers, that word conversation, it, it refers to our citizenship. All right? Our citizenship or conversation, it is in heaven as believers. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Do you see the glorious truth for the believer? Do you see the glorious promise made by Christ to the believer in Jesus Christ? Not only does salvation change you, but as you grow in Christ, you grow in holiness, you grow in Christ-likeness, you grow in your, your pursuit of Christ and your abandonment of sin and your abandonment of the world as you pursue Christ. But even as a believer, you still have this body of flesh. You still carry, all, you still carry with you this, this vile body as the Bible refers to it. But one day, you're going to shed that. One day, God will give you a new body. One day, God will give you a glorified body. And you will dwell with Christ. No more sin. No more temptation. Again, no more sorrow. No more pain. No more heartache. You will dwell with Christ forever. Again, in, in, in his glory, in heaven, for eternity. But notice how, it's, notice how the wording is here in Philippians. It says, who shall change our vile body? All right, so God will change us. 
It will glorify us. We'll get a glorified body. Notice what it said. Notice what it said here. That it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. All right. So as believers, we will have the same type of, of resurrected body that Christ has. That's what the Bible says in 1 John. When we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. It will be a body like the resurrected body of Christ. That's just unfathomable. That's just incredible. That's just amazing to think about that truth. To think about the glory that awaits believers. And while we're in this life, we battle against sin. We fight against sin. We mortify sin. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Grow in sanctification. Why? Because Christ has saved us. He, he, we, we have experienced that metamorphosis of salvation. But while we're in this, again, while we're in this world, walking through this life, on this pilgrim journey, pursuing Christ, running the race set before us, we keep our eyes on what's to come. We keep our eyes on the fact that one day this world's going to pass away. The lusts of the world are going to pass away. This vile body is going to pass away. Again, all things will be made new. Again, we will receive a glorified body, like as unto the body of Christ. And we will dwell with him for eternity. And the race will be over. Again, and we will dwell with him in the joys of heaven. I ask you this morning, can are you rejoicing in the coming transformation of glorification? Three questions. Have you experienced the transformation of salvation? Are you yielding to the transformation of sanctification? Are you rejoicing in the coming transformation of glorification? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, we thank you, Father, for the truth you've shown to us in your word. We thank you, God, for the truth of the transfiguration, Lord. And Lord, it's just a small taste, a foretaste of what is to come, Lord. Lord, the glory that awaits believers in Christ, Lord. Lord, just as Christ was transformed, Lord, so we will be transformed. God, we have been transformed. We are being transformed, and we will ultimately be transformed. Lord, whenever you come back and receive us, whether, uh, Lord, whether we, we pass on before you come, Lord, we know that the Bible teaches that the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet Christ in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And God, we listen for the trumpet. God, we look forward to the day when Jesus is going to come again and receive his bride, receive his church. Lord, take us out of this world. Take us out of this sin-cursed world. Lord, take us out of these sin-cursed bodies, Lord. And Lord, give us glorified bodies. And Lord, just, uh, Lord, just we look forward to that hope. We look forward to that truth, God. And God, I pray we'd rejoice in, in the coming glorification that awaits believers. God, I pray for you to have your will and way in this uh, remainder of this service, I pray in Jesus' name.